to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Today on Everyday Theology, we have with us Shane Claiborne, who, uh, beyond just being a speaker and an activist and a a best-selling author, um, has as we were just talking, kind of deeply shaped people, uh, people's lives with uh, perceptions on um, how to live best like Jesus by actually following the words of Jesus. And and I love it. And so, Shane, thanks so much for being with us today. Absolutely, man. I'm glad to be a part of the conversation. Um, I, I asked Shane to, to join us today to have a, a conversation on the death penalty, which for so many people... Um, especially growing up like I grew up in in a Pentecostal home and a quite conservative Pentecostal home, the death penalty was righteous and holy because the United States said it was, it was something we do because the Bible says we should do it. And I think there's been a journey in trying to process that. And, and I want to hear Shane, if you wouldn't mind introducing kind of yourself um, so our listeners get to know more about you and then take us on that journey for you and where, why this kind of issue became so important for you and how you've kind of uh, reevaluated it. For sure. Well, I, I grew up in Tennessee. I've lived in Philly for the last 25 years or so. We've got a beautiful community, uh, almost like a village that we're building on the north side of Philadelphia. So we've got, you know, abandoned houses we're fixing up, community gardens, murals. Even in the pandemic, we've got tons of food that we're sharing with with folks that are especially vulnerable. Um, But, you know, I came up here to go to college. And before that, I was raised in uh, East Tennessee. And uh, a lot of the things that I'm so passionate about now I uh, felt very differently about when I was, <laughs> you know, grow, growing up, or when, when I was, uh, you know, in high school and things like that. Um, you, you know, I, the the last two books that I've written have been about particular issues. That um, one was my my last book was on gun violence. It's called Beating Guns, and before that was this book on the death penalty that we're talking about. Uh, called executing grace, and the the reason I wrote them is is because I you know I grew up really passionately saying that I was pro life, but only later mm, yeah. you know I've come to see how narrowly we've defined what that means right really to to one main issue of abortion, and and I I think we'd be more accurate many pro life folks just to say that they're. Uh, anti-abortion or they're, they're pro-birth, you know, because it, it's, it's like that's the only uh, life issue that exists. And, and you start to see that, um, you know, the irony is in America, you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-war, uh, and still say you're pro-life. <laughs> you <know>? yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I wanted a more robust ethic of life, you know, uh, to say, to, I like to say I'm pro-life from the womb to the tomb, uh, <laughs> it, you know, and, yeah. and so for me, um, uh, what I saw is how inconsistent that life ethic is. And, um, that's my operative framework for so much is this sort of aud- uh, audacious, uh, um, assumption that the author of life 
cares about it, right? And that any time a life is cut short or someone's dignity is squashed, uh, God takes that personally because we're, we're really hurting a part of, of God's uh, image uh, in the world and, uh, and, and people that, that God cares so passionately about. Um, so on, on, on the death penalty and gun violence, I found this is the wild thing is that Christians have uh, have not been the champions of life. And a lot of times we've been the obstacles of it. Mm, uh, we, yeah. we own guns. We're the highest gun owning demographic in America, white evangelical Christians. We own guns at a higher rate than the general population. And on the death penalty, it's even more stark. Eighty five percent of executions happen in the Bible belt. Uh, And it's very clear that the death penalty wouldn't stand a chance in America if it weren't for Christians. You know, it's, it's held on, not in spite of us, but because of us. So that started, that started to mess with me, you know? Um, But I'll, I'll say just one more thing on this is that, that really when the death penalty became on my radar, I mean, it's one of those things that a lot of us, you know, we, we have strong opinions on, but we haven't actually thought a whole lot about it. You know, we might just have a couple of Bible verses that we use. But um, I, I um, after my first book, I've, I've always given my books away to people who are incarcerated. And I'll never forget, I got one in particular letter that was from a man there in Florida. And he wrote me this letter just pouring out his story. And he said, I'm alive today. Um, because of the victim's family, he did, he said, I did something terrible and I'll hmm. regret it for the rest of my life. But it was the victim's family that they were Christians and they believed in redemption and second chances. And they argued against the death penalty for him. And, you wow. know, it, it's stories like that, that, that really created kind of a hiccup and in, in my own theology and, um, and, and, it, and it raised, uh, I, this is why I think the, the death penalty warrants a whole book is because I think it, it does raise some of the most important and essential questions of our faith. And one of those is, do we believe that anyone's beyond redemption? Uh, so that's why I really tr- tried to dig a little, little bit deeper on this. Right. It, it reminds me, um, that kind of beautiful story reminds me of something that happens like, um, I think it was probably about five years ago or so with, um, which unfortunately didn't have a good outcome with, uh, you know, the theologian Jürgen Moltmann, um, who had kind of befriended an inmate, uh, on death row. I think her name was Kelly, I believe. Yeah, Kelly Gissendanner, and and yeah. I, I, I've, I've been with many of her friends and her daughter. Um, yeah, we worked hard to try to stop that execution. But go ahead. Yeah, that was really powerful because he made it very personal. He he made it very personal, right? Like he went and visited her, and um, I I believe I mean I, the story just popped into my mind. It's been some time. Did she not get ordained as well? She got her theological degree, yeah. Theological from, degree, from yeah. Handler Seminary, yeah. Uh-huh. Which is incredible, and unfortunately, I think she was still executed. And you know, for so many, I think what you said at kind of the top of this, like thinking about being pro-life for so many people, has kind of stopped with um, birth, right? Like if we can just get the the child to be born 
we've done our job and everything is done. But, you know, as someone who is opposed to abortion, um, like you said, to, to, to claim pro-life is to claim life from, from beginning to end, to actually be with people through, throughout it, to, to care for people from beginning to end. But why do you think it is that so many Christians still hold to something like the death penalty? Uh, yeah. So, and, and just one more thing on Kelly Gissendaner, because I, I think that the proximity makes a, so much of a difference. And, and Jürgen Moltmann, who he actually, w- w- you know, endorsed my, my Executing Grace book. It, it's, it's a funny thing because he got so involved in this because he got proximate, you know, and, um, and, and for many of us, I think we talk about these issues without thinking of the names and faces, you know, of the people who are affected. Yeah. And Kelly's story is really unique because uh, it, it is um, unquestionable that she did not commit the murder that she was convicted of. She did um, conspire to in, in, the, in sort of a plot that ended with her, her um, uh, ex-husband's murder. Um but the person who actually did the murder uh, did not face the death penalty, and uh, huh. uh, and and she did, you know, and and so we just got these laws that really uh, um, it raises some of the questions of how much we trust our government with this kind of irreversible power of life and death. But more more fundamentally, I think is the question of redemption because Kelly fell in love with Jesus. Um, and that's why she went on to get her theological degree. And I've met people who were in prison with her that she had said she would whisper through the air vents God's love to them when they were thinking of taking their lives. Um, huh. she, she would tell them how much God loved them and how valuable they were. And um, I met one woman that said, I'm alive today because Kelly convinced me that I'm you know, a child of God and I'm here for a reason. Wow. Um, and of course, then she was uh, eventually executed. And as she died, uh, she sang Amazing Grace. And so I, I just can't ever hear that song, this, you know, without thinking of that. Um, and of course, her daughter, you know, I, I got to know and her, here's her daughter that, you know, her, her dad was killed and now her mom's being killed by the state. So you, you start to see that the, the, the death penalty really kind of mirrors the very violence that we're trying to heal the world of. And it creates new wounds. It creates new victims, you know. Um, and, and in the end, it's it's a lot of murder victims, family members who I've gotten to know that have said violence is the problem. It's not the solution. You know, we, we, yeah. we, we can do better yeah. than mirroring the, the violence and the harm done. So we, we shouldn't, you know, kind of keep this logic that we can kill to show that killing is wrong. Um any more than we would think we should rape someone to show that rape is wrong, you know? So, yeah. So, yeah. But, you know, I, I think, you know, when you ask the question of how has this survived, I mean, partly what, what's, what's wild is that, um, the, the, the data for folks that just look at the facts and the data, I mean, it, it's so clear that, um, that, that it, the death penalty doesn't, um, it, it's not a deterrent of crime. I mean, usually when someone's doing something so terrible, they're not thinking of the consequences of that, you know, um, and, and it's, it costs more to maintain the death penalty than alternatives to it. Even things like, um, 
life in prison. So there's a whole movement of uh, fiscal conservatives who are against the death penalty just because of the numbers. But then wow. you, know, you go, so kind of like, why have we held out this this kind of uh, really archaic form of justice? And it really is the Bible that um, gets argued over and over that God ordained this. Um, Martin Luther is called the celebrity endorsement uh, for the death penalty, because he said not only is the executioner the hand of the state to carry out justice, but the, the executioner is the hand of God. So I think we've hmm. got some pretty messed up theology that we've got to wrestle with. <laughs> yeah. you know? And, and you know, when you're talking everyday theology, one of the things that's so beautiful about the early church is how consistent their ethic of life was. I've got a book here uh, by my my friend Ron Sider, it's called the Early Church on Killing, and he goes through every issue: abortion. Uh, um, he goes through like uh, mil- militarism, but the death penalty is in there. He also talks about the gladiatorial games and just the culture of violence, and and it's all the early Christians in the first like three hundred years of the church speaking ag- out against every iteration of violence in their culture. They were champions of life, you know? Um, And one of the most powerful ones that I think is, there's a line by Cyprian who lived in the third century as a bishop. And he said, when an individual kills another individual, we call it evil. But why do we sanctify it when the the state does it in mass? (laughs) (laughs) That <laughs> brother did this mince words, you know. So, Good you know, question, I, right? I mean, we can dig into the other stuff. You know, I think the Old Testament, eye for an eye, the, you know, Romans 13, there's verses that we use that I used myself. And that's why I'm so familiar with those passages, you know. But there still was something inside me that, you know, it just doesn't quite feel right, you know, especially as you watch these executions carried out. And it's only in the last year or so that I've had people that I know that were executed. And man, I mean, it's hard to walk away without just feeling nauseous, like, like, like you're going to throw up, you know, it, right. it, it, and, yeah. and, you know, when on these death certificates, when someone's executed, the manner of death is listed as homicide. So we know what we're doing. I mean, we're, we're literally taking someone's life, you know, and, and I think the, the early Christians, it's so beautiful that they would say, no, it's wrong to kill, whether it's done by a criminal or by a governor. Well, let's, uh, you know, it, it's always a thing like when it comes to like this issue, it is that kind of, even though we were talking before and I was like, I don't know if I want to necessarily try to like talk back and forth about Bible verses because like it's, it's based on so much kind of interpretation and so much, uh, uh, of the lens through which we understand what the Bible is doing. But I think almost we need to get there. And especially since you're so familiar with those passages, uh, to talk about, uh, the vision of the Bible in relation to the death penalty, because you're right. I mean, growing up, so many people would tell me, well, well, the death penalty is not just it's not just good. It's mandated because of the Old Testament law. Yeah. While the same people would be like, yeah, but you you don't have to worry about some of the laws. Um, and at the same time, people would tell me, and also we shouldn't have slaves. But that reading of the Old Testament is really tough because yeah. the Old Testament says that you can have slaves and it says that you shouldn't eat certain things and it says that you should um, 
that you should, you know, put to death a life for a life. Yeah. And, and yet, like, we're just kind of like, in so many ways, kind of hermeneutically, when we read the text, we're just picking and choosing which passage to some degree, as Scott McKnight would say, like, everyone kind of uh, picks and chooses, right? Like, we, we kind of take that um, to to kind of fit our, our already existing worldview. And so maybe kind of walk us through some of those passages to help us understand you know, how do we understand these passages in light of the death penalty and, and, and especially in light of Christ and who Christ is? For sure. I, and I want to say to folks that, you know, the minute they hear like the Hebrew or Greek, they're like, Marr! you know, like, like I, <laughs> I, I mean, I, the, I think as we talk about this, um, it, it, I, I find a lot of people really, even, even non-Christian folks that really love like a better, look at scripture, you know, and what it's saying. A lot of my Jewish friends that think we're abusing the Hebrew Bible by justifying the death penalty. So it is pretty interesting. But I also want to say for folks that the Bible isn't their primary lens for thinking about these things, that it's so important that you can't disconnect this conversation from uh, our history around race as well, you know, and, and mm. so it's also true that not only is it where Christians are most concentrated that the death penalty continues to hold on, but it's also those same states that held on to slavery the longest that uh, continue to hold on to the death penalty and um, where lynchings were happening a hundred years ago. Uh, is precisely where executions continue to to happen today, you know, and and so you know as we we moved uh, away from lynching African American folks to the death penalty, black folks were seventy five percent of executions in nineteen fifty, wow. um, and now there's still African Americans make almost uh, half of death row. Uh, the population of death row um, and over a third of the execution. So a lot of times we think that we are killing the worst of the worst, but the truth is that we're actually killing the poor, the, the poorest of the poor uh, when it comes to the death penalty and disproportionately people of color. And the biggest determinants of who gets executed um, is, are not things like the atrocity of the crime, but they are often things like the race of the victim. Uh, like in Florida, uh, until just recently, there had never been a white person um, who was sentenced to death for the the uh, killing an African American. It was almost, I mean, it was disproportionate. I mean, it was one of the most wow. stark contrasts that yeah. uh, when the victim was white and the defendant was black, that often ended in a death sentence. You know, so geography, the resources of the defendant, all are things that are much more determinant of who actually lives and dies. I mean, you think like Jeffrey Dahmer didn't get the death penalty. Charles Manson uh, died of natural causes in prison. Ted Kaczynski, who went to Harvard, is still alive. So, you know, I think I think we've got to think about that. But the Bible, I mean, for a lot of people, that is the big stumbling block because you go, well, this it's all in there. You know, I mean, there's still to this day politicians who say, how could God be against the death penalty when God used it to save the world? Right, <laughs> right, like, right. You're like, whoa, dude, we're, <laughs> can we grab a cup of coffee? Uh, so just talk a little everyday theology. So, you know, <laughs> so just a, a couple of thoughts on the Hebrew scripture on the Old Testament are. Um, I mean, starting with the first, the sort of inaugural murder of the Bible is Cain and Abel. 
And yet it's pretty important how God dealt with that. God did not execute Cain. Uh, in fact, God marked and protected Cain. Now he did like suffer consequences. The, the murder of his brother Abel did not go, you know, unchecked, but he's allowed right. to live. He's actually allowed to build a city um, eventually. And he goes into sort of this exile, but um, he's not killed, you know? And then you, you, you kind of keep reading and the next murderer, in the Bible, one of the first murders that we have in the Bible after Cain and Abel is Moses killing a man. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, of course, he goes on to be one of the heroes of our faith. David, right. you know, who I learned in Sunday school is a man after God's own heart. But like he had some really dark days. You know, he he raped this woman named Bathsheba and then has her husband Uriah killed to cover it up. And, you know, he has this moment of repentance and God's grace prevails. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, you look at the Bible and it's full of people who did some really messed up stuff. Saul of Tarsus, by every definition, was a murderer. Um, and, and and so the, the Bible would be a lot shorter without grace. <laughs> <You know? laughs> if, if, if we didn't believe that murderers, you know, deserved a second chance, we could rip out half the Bible. It'd be a lot shorter. So that that's I think, you know, is the, the, the overview of this is that this is a this whole story is a love story. It's a redemption story. Um and and if we miss that, then we kind of end up, you know, abusing these other scriptures in a way that, uh, uh, you know, betrays that. So, but I do want to talk about the eye for an eye thing, because this is one of the most quoted Bible verses in the world, especially when it comes to death penalty. Um, and it is important that, um, in the Hebrew Bible, in the old Testament, capital murder is not the only capital, uh, death worthy crime. Um, like there are th over 30 crimes that are listed as death deserving. Right. So, uh, <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. And some, some not very seemingly death deserving ones either, to be yeah, honest. So, I mean, like working on the Sabbath day, I always say everybody, but Chick-fil-A would be in trouble on that one. You know, like, <laughs> so you got working on the Sabbath, you got sorcery and witchcraft, which even in, in this country were on the books that like the Salem witch trials, right. We, we think it right. like, so even the United States has evolved in what we think is a death worthy crime. And, and, um, so when it comes to an eye for an eye, it, it, what's what's really interesting is that um, this was an ancient paradigm for thinking about justice that allowed for reciprocal harm. It was called lex talionis. So it's where we get the idea of retaliation from. But we've sort of used it as a license for revenge. And it's exactly different from like kind of what it was intended for, which was to, to stop the spiral of violence, right? So it was to like, just like violence escalates, you know, it, it was to say you can hurt someone back, but only in as much as they hurt you. So if someone poked your eye out, you couldn't go poke both of their eyes out, you know? Mm, and yeah. so it was a limit, not a license. And, and, you know, we might say it more accurately an eye for an eye, no more. Um, and yet like you sort of think of that today and you go, man, we know that we can do better than mirroring 
the harm, right? If you, if you cut my arm off, we're not going to sever your arm, right? Like we don't rape people who rape to show that rape is wrong, but we like in this most extreme case of murder, we still have this paradigm that we, we default to, which is you can kill to show that killing is wrong. And that's where I think Jesus really shines so brightly is he comes and says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, but I tell you this, Moses told you this, but I tell you this. And my, my, understanding of Jesus, and this is, you know, very orthodox theology, is that Jesus did not come uh, to contradict the law, but to fulfill the law, right? So stopping the, the spiral of violence was a good place to start. But now here's Jesus saying, you, maybe you can hurt them back, but that doesn't mean you should. You know, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right or that it's the best justice that we can do. So Jesus is going to, of course, show us um, the fulfillment of that, which is not even to harm someone back and that we can interact in a violent world without becoming violent ourselves. So I, I think it's just a stunning thing. And and some of my Jewish friends, they think this is beautiful too, because they, one of the things that they say is even though we had these, you know, 30 plus laws in the, in the, on the books, it was to show how important these things were. But Jewish folks always hated executing people. And the rabbis hundreds of years ago said, if we execute more than one person in every 70 years, something's wrong with our society. And uh, hmm. so he said, we made the prohibitions for carrying out an execution so strict. There's over 40 of them. The executions almost never happened. They didn't even allow consequential evidence so like uh, or circumstantial evidence. Like half the things that we execute people for, they didn't even meet the Jewish criteria for it. So my, my, <laughs> my, my rabbi friend, he he's, dies laughing at this. And he goes, so here the Christians are misusing the the Old Testament to justify the death penalty. And then he goes, and you guys have Jesus to reconcile it all with, you know? So that, I mean, that's the the baffling thing for me is, you know, any pro-death penalty Christian has the nagging problem of Jesus, you know, that we've got to reconcile this with. And, you know, Jesus interrupts an execution of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus, you know, constantly is interrupting the patterns of violence. And uh, at the end of the day, I mean, suffered from an execution. And so we, we, you know, as we interpret that, it should do something to us, you know, I, I, and and, uh, so that's, you know, just a little bit of the Hebrew scripture that I think, you know, I think we can't, can't ignore it because it's still something that people keep coming back to and they use those old Testament laws to trump the, the grace of Jesus. And and I, I think that's where it gets hard is because we're we're constantly told well we need to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, yeah. Unless it's this issue, right? <laughs> unless it's <laughs> unless it's this one. So so you take someone like Jesus who would rather take violence upon himself than dole out violence. Thus, in the garden, when one of the uh, apostles cuts off the ear of a servant, he's like, no, right? Like, this is not right. what we do. Uh, he would rather take it upon himself to spare others of that violence. Um, yet we can't read that through to the Old Testament or through to today either, where we we still want to do this eye for an eye thing, right? Where we still want to get our 
revenge or I think the word that we often kind of pair there is justice, right? Like, well, this is just justice. Justice is if someone kills somebody, then they should be put to death. Yeah. And it, it, I don't know if that necessarily pairs very well with God's version of justice. It's a, it's a great point. And uh, I, I always think it's, it's so important to insist that to be anti-death penalty doesn't mean we're anti-justice. Uh, right, it exactly. It doesn't mean that we're anti-victims. In fact, so many of the, the movements of murder victim family members like Journey of Hope. Um, is one of those that gathers murder victims' family members together with families of folks on death row to say that violence is the problem, not the solution. And we can honor the victims of violence without creating more. Uh, so that that uh, this biblical idea of, of justice and righteousness are connected, right? And my scholarly friends, uh, uh, they, they say that the best translation we have for that word um, or that concept of righteousness and justice is restorative justice. Yeah. Um, because God's justice, biblical justice, is about uh, setting right what was made wrong. It's about healing the wounds of sin and violence uh, in the world. And that's a very different way of thinking about justice than a lot of the punitive justice of our criminal justice system, which is much more interested in what did they do wrong and what punishment did they deserve for that crime. And it's not always focused on... Um, what's the most redemptive and healing thing, you know, what, 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 and, and so, you know, there's so many stories that I share in, in executing grace about what restorative justice can actually kind of substantially look like, you know, what, what does that, what does that actually look like in our world when someone does something terrible, like murder another person? Well, and, and maybe kind of talk about that a little bit, because I think, I think for some some people, the idea of restorative justice is actually new. Um, this like idea that the point, or at least for maybe even just for a Christian, the point of putting someone into prison isn't to force them to to just to just pay for their their what we call the debt to society, but to help reform them so that when they leave, they no longer they don't go back and do that same thing again. Yeah. And yet we kind of stop there and we don't kind of listen to the words of Jesus, which talks about going and visiting those in prison. Exactly. And, you know, the, the, there's wonderful folks that I kind of mine the gems of their the, the, the work that they've done on restorative justice. And, um, you know, some of the distinctions are that the, the punitive justice or criminal justice system, it, it's the, the crime is a violation of the law and the state, whereas in restorative justice, it focuses much more on the people who have been harmed, the communities mm. that have been harmed, and they have a voice in saying what, you know, healing looks like in that. So, um you know, the, the, the restorative justice often brings victims and offenders together. And there's a really, you know, robust kind of uh, way that they do that. But I'll tell you one of the powerful stories I, I encountered as I was writing uh, the book, Executing Grace, was I was almost done with it. And I was in Minneapolis and I was speaking there. I was actually speaking about grace. And so someone was like, <laughs> yo, man, you got to meet this woman. She's like a freaking saint. And um, so they take me over to meet this woman, Mary Johnson. And she, we just spent the whole afternoon together and she told me her story and it starts like so many of these stories, um, 
really horrifically her her um, only son her young boy uh, he was a teenager was killed in a by a, a stray bullet a random bullet in in a Minneapolis and um, they caught the young man there's another really young guy that had uh, um, mistaken him or whatever and they and they got it they he was in jail and Mary you know when she she's a woman of faith so she said I, I gotta tell you though when this happened you know this is my only son I wanted the harshest form of punishment, you know, possible for this dude. Um, and she said, you know, she's got this kind of charismatic side though, bro. And she goes, she goes, but the <laughs> spirit started working on me. And, and she talks about it like this poem fell from heaven, but it's this anonymous poem and I have it here. She um, shared it with me, but it's, it's this um, poem about these two women in heaven. And they're talking to each other, these angelic figures, and they can tell from the blue tint of their halo that they lost their children while they were living on earth. And so the one woman realizes she's talking to Mary, right? The mother of Jesus. Oh, and, yeah. and she just falls on her knees and she says, Oh, Mary, Oh, Mary, you know, uh, I, I, you know, blessed are you. And they hug and Mary looks back at her and says, um, tell me about your story. And she says, I'm the mother of Judas Iscariot. Wow. And, so my friend Mary back in Minneapolis, she said, when I read this poem, it moved me. And she said, I realized that there's another mother involved in this story. And she got to know the mother of O'Shea, the young man who killed her own son. And they became kind of soul sisters and they started an organization. I get chills every time I'm telling this, but she says they yeah. started an organization called Two Mothers. And um, they accompany folks that are victims of that are that, you know, find themselves caught up in these violent incidents. And so when there's a murder, they, they'll go meet with the, the family of the murder victim, but they'll also go meet with the family of the person who committed that crime. And then, you know, their lives are often sucked up into the criminal justice system. And um, so anyway, as this unfolded, Mary Johnson got to know O'Shea, the young man who was in prison and through a, a ton of courage and strength that I think only comes from God. You know, they began to build a relationship and they all became um, a part of this redemptive work. And eventually, in part because of the advocacy of, of uh, Mary Johnson, O'Shea was released from prison because he was only a young man when he did this. And so he was able many, many years later to be released. And they ended up being next door neighbors. Wow. And, and you look at this and it just has... It has Jesus all over it, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, and, yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're using their own wounds um, to, to, to try to prevent more and to, and to heal um, some of those wounds of the world. So um, it's stories like that. And there's so many different stories of that kind of courage. Um, you know, I, another man that was, uh, uh, had a problem with drinking and driving and he took, a life, a, a teenage girl's life as he was driving drunk. And the the family of that young girl, instead of just locking him up for the rest of his life, they said, you know, let's allow him to do something to try to heal, you know, both himself and others. So they speak together. And you imagine like, it's one thing for an audience to hear from the, you know, the mother of a drunk driver, or, you know, the mother of a, a girl that was killed by a drunk driver, but then to hear from a drunk driver that did that, 
uh, the impact that that can have. And I think the impact that it has on him too, to say, Hey, we're, we're all more than the worst thing we've ever done. As my friend, Brian Stevenson says, you know, and, and so we, we've got to allow grace to get the last word. And, uh, you know, so I, I think there's these terrible tragedies and these, they, they also allow us an opportunity, um, for, uh, grace to triumph over the disgraceful things. And as, you know, Easter people <laughs> in a violent world, <laughs> we, we believe that life is more powerful than death, that love is more powerful right. than hatred. Uh, but our criminal justice system doesn't always uh, mirror that. Which, which I think when people hear those kind of stories, and when I hear those kind of stories, you know, being, being a charismatic folk myself, um, there's there's moments where you feel very moved by by the spirit and just hearing these stories because they resonate with us and and sometimes in who we're supposed to be when we're not yeah um and and they can really resonate though on the flip side i i you know those same stories i can hear you know i've i've told some of these stories to people uh, not these that you've given but other ones cuz they're they're out there right if we're paying attention and we look we see these kind of stories of redemption that are happening um where other people just go i just couldn't do that i just can't that's just not you know if that happened to me i would definitely seek the death penalty right and and it's understandable in some sense because of this idea of like the person you know really loves their their family they 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 truly do and they just could not imagine a world without them but at the same time it also just kind of forgets Jesus as part of the equation yeah yeah well and and what it also does is it, it the death penalty um creates this false promise of closure uh, yeah. that I've come to see that um I mean, first of all, it's only it's like less than one percent of murders that actually do get the death penalty. So if this is closure, then we're failing like ninety nine percent of the people, you know. But I don't think the answer is more or executions. <laughs> right. But I, I just think that like when we tell people that this is how you're going to get closure, we're also saying, but that may take twenty or thirty years that you're going to have to relive this, and you know. So many of these families, they end up going, no, this is, this did not bring closure, you know, um, and and I don't need someone to be killed to have closure because it certainly doesn't bring their loved one back, you know. Um, and there's one person I think of in particular who um, her dad was actually uh, murdered her mother. And she said, I hated him. I wanted him to die. I, w- I wanted to kill him myself. And she said, but I began to realize that the hatred wasn't hurting him. It was destroying me. Hmm, and you see yeah. that this is, it, it, you know, that there, there is something in us that when we um, require blood for the blood that was done to us, then we, we end up, I think, losing one of the core parts of Jesus's whole point, you know, what, which was to, be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, right? Right. Like, like took all of, he absorbed the violence of the world to um, make a spectacle of it and to triumph over it. And anytime we resort to calling for execution, I think we undermine and contradict the very heart of what Jesus did on the cross. So I, you know, I, I think that's, um, 
that it's a really, really important part of our, you know, the, the movement to end the death penalty is that we do want real healing um, for yeah. victims, families. And it's there, you've got some real heroes there, man, in Florida, because Suzanne Bostler is a, a very dear friend of mine. And she, her dad was murdered um, and um, he was a pastor. And um, Suzanne was there. She barely survived the scene of the crime. She was stabbed wow. multiple times in the head. Oh, and she said she faked her own death in order to survive. And she said, but as she walked away from that, there was never a moment that she thought the death penalty was the best that we could do or that it's what her, her dad as a pastor would want. And she became very vocal about that. And this is a wild thing, man. When it went to court, she was given a gag order and told by the court that she could not give her opinion on the death penalty Whoa. because it was this, it was a crime against the state. So this, she would be an obstruction of justice. And she was even threatened with fines and jail time if she did offer her opinion. And you're like, my gosh, I mean, she's the closest family member and victim to the right. crime, right? Right, yeah. And you start to see that we have one narrative of what justice looks like, because that's what we always use, so often use to justify executions. We say, "Well, we need justice for the victims," but there are many victims who really believe that this is not true justice, and that what it does is it just extends the trauma, you know, and 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 creates a new set of victims, and they don't want to mirror uh, the that you know that that same violence that was done to them. And, and like you said, you know, it's not about not having justice. It's about reframing what that justice looks like yeah. or what that justice is and trying to pair that justice uh, or reframe that justice, maybe put it this way, in light of the person of Jesus, first and foremost. Exactly. And, yeah. and recognizing redemption is the key, but that doesn't necessarily take away you know, jail time or uh, kind of other processes and healing that that need to happen. But it is saying there's a better goal than than just letting someone rot in a cell or um, you know putting them to death. There's a there's a there's got to be a better goal to the end of that that sentence. Yeah, and and so often it's in states where we have governors who really profess their Christianity very publicly, and yet they are making these decisions. You know, in my home state of Tennessee, Governor Bill Lee, um, he's in Bible study with Michael W. Smith. You know, he's very passionate about his faith, and yet he's executing people at a higher rate than uh, any governor in in recent history, and. Um, and he's used, they're using the electric chair, like Tennessee brought the electric chair back. Uh, you know, G Governor Abbott in Texas, you know, G governors in many of these states, they, they are going to church on Sunday and they're worshiping a Jesus as blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. You know, you're going, Man, <laughs> Christ, uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, well, we're missing the whole point. I, just one other thing that I thought of as you were sharing that, though, man, is uh, there's another really heroic person down in Florida, uh, Ron McAndrew, who I interviewed for my book. And check this out. He he is like a tough on crime guy. He's he, he's a former prison warden who oversaw executions there in Florida. And I mean, when I talked to him, you could tell, you know, he's a like you do the crime, you should do the time kind of guy, you know. But yeah. um, he said 
the death penalty is something different though. And he told me a story and um, they actually used the electric chair when he was executing in Florida and someone began to smoke as he was executing them and he was haunted by it. Uh, and he said, this is so messed up. And so he, he wasn't done with the death penalty. He was done with the electric chair. So he went to Texas, got trained in lethal injection and brought it back to Florida thinking, you know, he would create a more sanitized, humane way of carrying out executions. And he said, but as we continued to execute by lethal injection, I was still haunted. And he says, literally, the guys that I executed visited me in my sleep. And he went huh. in a spiral of um, really unhealthy things. And he, he had this incredible, incredible spiritual journey where he, he now is very passionately um, uh, against the death penalty. In fact, he's an expert witness that gets called in court, uh, you know, many of the, a lot of the time, uh, but this is the thing he says, I'm, I'm still, I believe in justice. He said, but there's no good way to kill someone. You know, it does something to us and we don't always think about, you know, the people that are left with this, you know, the horrific, dirty work of carrying out an execution. Um, And it it does something. There's many former prison wardens and executioners and, uh, you know, um, corrections officers that are against the death penalty because they see, you know, what it does. And they see some of these men and women who you know, 10 years, 20 years later, they, they've become very different people than they were when they, they may have done something when they were young, you know? So, um, I, I love that. And I think actually something that you, I think this was you, honestly, I just recently, you know, um, at a church that I'll often preach at, uh, they did a thing where they all wrote to the, to the governor of Tennessee, to ask the governor just to go and pray with the inmates who are on death row. Um, was was that your thing? Cause I I thought it was, I was like, I didn't want to say it was yours and then, and then not. Totally. But I'll I'll tell you the backdrop, just quick, the backdrop of that, because it's fascinating is I was speaking at a conference with the former governor. He's not governor now, but governor Haslam. And I got to talk with him and I said, man, I'm, I'm praying for you. I really pray that you will do what Jesus wants you to do. I knew he was a man of faith. And then I met, I went to meet the guys on death row and uh, I've gotten to know a lot of them over the years. And I said to him, you're not going to believe, you know, I got to talk to the governor while I was on my way over here. And I asked them, what would you say? if you got a chance to talk to the governor face to face like that. And it was total silence. And then one of the first guys to, to, to talk, he goes, we'd ask the governor to come pray with us and come hear Mm. about what Jesus has done in our lives. And that struck me. And so we've kept making that request, even with a new governor now and over half of the men on Tennessee's death row, uh, 32 of the men on Tennessee's death row have now signed on to this letter, which is really simple. It's one line, right? <laughs> we, we've heard that you're a man of faith. Please come pray with us, you know, and hear what God's done in our lives. So we're, we're sending those postcards and, you know, if folks want to send them, whole churches have been doing it to, to Governor Lee. Uh, you can get them on our website, which is uh, deathpenaltyaction, deathpenaltyaction.org. Um, I think that what's so beautiful about that is this, as I've maybe kind of like said throughout, throughout this time together, that in order for people to be changed in their kind of perception of this, we need to hear the stories and partake in the stories. Yeah. 
that there's, I think, a lot of people who would rather not listen to the stories or rather kind of keep that in arm's distance because once we start to embody the story of something, we we find ourselves challenged and often changed um, by actually being, by, by, by partaking in the story or like, you know, the, the gentleman who was actually, uh, you know, doing the executions and being changed by actually the moment of it, right? Like being involved with it. I think this is one of those issues that for most Christians who probably still hold to a death penalty, it's, it's because they've never embodied the story. It's, they've never experienced the story and and some may have, um, but others, I, I would say the majority probably have not experienced kind of what this kind of redemptive justice looks like or means. Totally. And, yeah. And and I think that's where we as Christians need to be better at listening to stories and partaking in the stories in the same way that we listen to the story and partake in the story of Jesus in the Gospels, um, is that we should be listening to the stories of our fellow brothers and sisters who are going through these issues and trying to understand what it's like to to live in that reality. Yeah, that's right. And uh, with so many of these issues, the death penalty is certainly one of those. I think it's not that we have a compassion problem. We have a proximity problem, you know, that we, we it's, it's yeah. kind of a relationship. And we when we just argue Bible verses or statistics, I think sometimes we we miss the humanity of, of what's really um in the midst of this. And, you know, we haven't even really talked about the issue of innocence, but I know tons of folks that um, are for the death penalty in principle, but they just question whether or not we can effectively carry that out, you know, as an imperfect government, you know, like we're, we're having a hard enough time, so, <laughs> so, but you know, you, 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 you think for, this is the, the fact is that for every, for, for every nine executions, We've had one exoneration, one person that was sentenced to die, sometimes was hours from their execution that was later proved innocent and released. And you're like, that is not a good track record. You know, like if every 10 planes that took off, if one crashed, you'd be like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, one of my friends there in Florida in Tampa, Derek Jameson was convicted of a crime that he had nothing to do with and was sentenced to death, spent 20 years on death row, um, saw dozens and dozens of his friends executed, was traumatized by that, um, lost his mom while he was in prison. And then 20 years later, the prosecution was forced to release all the evidence and 30 pieces of it proved his innocence. And Mm. now, you know, he was released with no apology and no financial support. Uh, and his entire life has been hijacked by that, you know, so he's using that in incredible ways. But, you know, I, I, sister Helen says, sometimes the question isn't whether or not we believe someone deserves to die, but whether we have the right to kill, (laughs) you know, whether we deserve to kill. So, um, yeah. And, 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 you know, the, the proximity, the, the, the faces, the names of that, that's what happened is I began to visit people in Tennessee. I began to hear of these guys, some of whom I believe are innocent. Um, like in Dume, who was convicted in Tennessee, he had never been to Tennessee. Uh, ex- the first time he went was to defend himself in court uh, against a crime that he was convicted of 
and he had never wow. even been to the state of Tennessee. Now he was later proved innocent, but like you, you just you, you think, man, this is this is nuts. And then there's people that I do believe um, did terrible things a long time ago, and um, man, one of the guys that I, I got I've gotten to love so much. Uh, he's now a pastor. His name's Kevin Burns. He's actually the guy that that chimed in and said that he'd asked the governor to come pray with him. He got ordained. And I was able to be there for his ordination, man. And I got to tell you, it just, it was thick with the spirit, man. Like we, we, uh, he told his whole testimony and all the guards are standing around listening to it, you know, and then his first act of ordination was to service all communion on death row. And hmm. now this past weekend, he gave the Easter sermon from death row at Franklin Community Church, the church that ordained him. He gave their Easter sermon. <laughs> Wow. You know, man, wow. I think that this man could face execution, you know, by a governor who claims to be Christian in Tennessee. Like that's the stuff that like just baffles the mind. So we need folks to really uh, step up, you know, because I, I mean, I'm convinced that the death penalty is on its way out. Executions are dropping uh, almost every year. They're the lowest they've been in 20 years. New death sentences are the lowest that they've been in uh, like over 40 years. Um, Every year, uh, almost uh, every year, a new state abolishes the death penalty. This year it was Colorado. And in many of those states, it's conservatives that are leading the way. This is not a really a partisan issue. It's a life issue. And um, uh, but, I, I, you know, I think the question is, is what role will Christians play uh, when it comes to ending the death penalty? Uh, because I think a generation from now, we will think of the death penalty a lot like we think back at slavery, you know, that, that, that with horror and shame and really embarrassed that the Bible was used to defend it. Um, and it do, doesn't take courage to say that slavery is wrong now, you know, a generation after we right. ended it. It took courage to say that slavery was wrong when it was the status quo, when it was accepted. And so uh, this is a time, you know, I, I think for courage. And the good news is young people, a, a lot of millennials, like 80% of millennial Christians are against the death penalty. And it's not in spite of their faith, but because of it, you know, we just have a lot of times I find that young people, because of podcasts like yours, you know, they have a more robust theology. Um, but even generally, you know, the, the, the Pew Foundation, I think it was like they polled the United States and they asked the U.S. population in general, would Jesus be in favor of the death penalty? Ninety-five <laughs> percent oh, wow. of Americans said, no, Jesus believe in grace and redemption like Jesus would not. And they said, we just got to convince the Christians. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Yeah. Jesus meant the stuff he said. Well, Shane, this has been, uh, I think, really helpful. I think hearing some of these stories and kind of how to process, I think, will be helpful for some people who are kind of on the journey of processing this this question and maybe where they stand and why they stand there. Um, is there uh, what resources can you maybe direct people to your own included, of course, um, that people who want to keep thinking and processing this, maybe even if they have questions more about what the Bible says and how to read the Bible in light of this? Uh, what, what resources can you point people towards? Absolutely. So uh, just a couple of them. Uh, you can find a lot of this on my website, uh, executinggrace.org. Um, 
And but the, 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 there's a couple of books. If you read Executing Grace, I, I really dig into a lot of these and also the stories and the Bible. I didn't see a book that kind of comprehensively uh, combined some of the theology and the stories and the vision for restorative justice. So that's part of why I wrote um, Executing Grace. But there's a chapter on Jesus that is uh, called the most famous execution in history, and it's free. And available online. I just posted it Easter week um, on my Facebook, so you can read that. Um, and then, if you haven't read Brian Stevenson's book *Just Mercy*, uh, it's wonderful. And there's a wonder, great film that you know captured that this past year called *Just Mercy*. And then, for folks that are really want to dig more into the Bible. Um, there's a book by a guy there in Florida, Dale Resinella. He's a chaplain on death row and he wrote a book. It's a big old thick book. It's wonderful. The biblical truth about America's death penalty. And it specifically goes into some of the history of how the Hebrew people understood the death penalty and how different that was from how we understand it today. And also, you know, things like Romans 13, which we didn't talk about a lot, but the kind of this blanket check. Um, to state power that we often give. He uh, he really digs into that. So those are a few resources. And you can go to our website, Death Penalty Action, and find a whole lot of other things happening. Like whenever there's an execution in Tennessee, we walk from death row to the, the capital, which is about eight miles. And you're welcome to join us not too far from Florida. So if you want a little road trip and uh, we, get over, <laughs> we get over this pandemic, we'll uh, march for mercy together. Hopefully, hopefully we can get out of the house soon. Yeah, well, I mean, the good uh, thing is that uh, there's no executions happening right now either, you know, but they're kind of, you know, the question is after the pandemic, will will we resume, you know, with, a, you know, this kind of bottleneck of execution. So let's pray that this season where we're so sensitive to suffering in life makes us even more compassionate, you know, and, 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 and also committed to standing against death and in all of its forms. So, um, thanks for listening, everybody, especially for people that, you know, this might be stretching some of your, uh, theology or ideas, but I, I think it's, it's such an important one. As you take away the layers, you see that, um, this raises some some really, really important issues, not just about capital punishment, but about how we understand Jesus's death and resurrection. Amen. Jane, thank you so much for being with us, man. It's been a real pleasure and honor to, to have this time with you. Absolutely, my brother. Let's do it again sometime. We'll have to talk guns next time. <laughs> <laughs> not Not a hot topic at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it, man. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. We'll, we'll uh, talk again <laughs> soon, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, we will. Before we end this podcast, Shane wanted to have something real and concrete to to kind of end with. And so we're going to do something special. There's a, a recording of Amazing Grace by a man on death row in Tennessee. His name is Abu Ali. And it's a beautiful version of the song Amazing Grace being sung by someone who's been on death row for 30 years, still awaiting what may come, and yet this is his proclamation amidst that time. And so just listen in as you hear Abu singing Amazing Grace and the transformation that's happened to him while awaiting something that shouldn't happen to anybody. Amazing Grace, Abu Ali. Amazing. 